0: Hello, this is Melissa Hale-Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, thrilled today to have two one-time enterprise reporters that our readers may well remember, Andrew Schatz and Saranac Hale-Spencer. We're going to take a Janice Face look at where they started, where they have gone, and kind of the state of journalism today. So let's start with Andrew, he came to the Enterprise right out of University of Albany, where he had been an ASPE, and dove in to Enterprise work. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: So tell us what happened after your tenure at the Enterprise.
1: Uh, After I was at the Enterprise, I worked at a daily newspaper in Hagerstown, Maryland, which is western Maryland, about 60 miles west of Washington, D.C., And I was there for almost 13 years before I went to work at a weekly in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, on the D.C. suburbs. I was an editor there, but the uh, paper shut down. And... Then I worked. So
0: tell us a little about that shutdown. That was the Bezos takeover of the Washington Post, right?
1: Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, but he also bought other properties that were connected to it, including this chain of weeklies, which is called the Gazette. And uh, the Post was um, propped up, and he gave them what he called runway by investing money in it, but the weeklies were allowed to wither and die.
0: Oh, God, Andrew, wither and die. Okay, that was very hard. And then from there, you landed on your feet and...
1: I went to work at another daily paper in Maryland, in Frederick, Maryland. It's between Hagerstown and Montgomery County. And that was a family-owned paper. It had been in the family for several generations. But while I was there, it was sold to Ogden newspapers which came in and made cuts, including me.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, Andrew. You are experiencing what's happening to modern American journalism. There are just um, corporate takeovers of many longtime family papers and consolidation and cuts. And so what happened next?
1: After that, I went to work for a... News publication in Bethesda, Maryland, which is also in Montgomery. It was, it's a magazine, but an offshoot of the magazine is a daily website, a news website, and I was filling in as an editor there. Uh, that was always meant to be a temporary gig. It lasted uh, six months after starting out, expecting it to be just a few weeks. And uh, that worked out very well. It's a thriving, growing um, news operation.
0: And that consists of a magazine, which is its basis, and then they launched an online news site. Right? That,
1: that's correct. Yeah, uh, the publisher <clears throat> built a uh, magazine that was is doing very well, still is, and as an offshoot of that, created this daily website that um, is small. It's an editor and three reporters, and that's the whole operation.
0: And then you are currently.
1: Uh, So after that ended, I ended up back at the newspaper in Hagerstown, the Herald-Mail, and now I'm there as an editor. So it's been uh, since January 2018, and um, that paper also is in the midst of a new corporate identity. It was purchased by Gatehouse a few months ago. As Gatehouse came in, it made some cuts in the newsroom, and just this past week, it made some more cuts in the newsroom.
0: And that has certainly been uh, observed by journalists. The Neiman Lab had a story on it. It's, they're watching what Gatehouse does because it has such a huge reach across the country. How many properties is this called? Does it have?
1: Uh, it's about 150 dailies. And overall, for all types of papers, I think it's about in the 450 to 500 range. It's, S- it's the largest chain in the country.
0: So in the midst of this maelstrom, where you've kind of been in the center of the storm, how has that affected the way you as an editor work?
1: Well, the biggest change is having to adapt to new ways of doing things, um, largely because the staff structure changes. Um, We are now in the midst of, yet again, trying to rethink what we do because one of the positions that was cut is the city editor, who is central to directing coverage during the day and we now have to uh, change things around to cover that position and in fact I looked at the schedule I will be taking over some of those duties um, in the interim for about a week or two.
0: So we're going to switch over to Saranac now and she was familiar to enterprise readers before she was a writer because as a teenager she used to take photographs for us and even did courtroom sketches for a murder trial but after she graduated from Cornell with a degree in philosophy she came to work for the enterprise so welcome back Sara yes hello thank you <laughs> and can you tell us about your journalistic journey on on leaving the enterprise
2: yeah so um, I went to a legal paper in Philadelphia where I was covering the Federal Courts, um, and I did that for a couple of years.
0: And what made you decide on that for your next step?
2: Uh, they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean that that really was what it was. But it, you know, it was just it was an interesting beat. It was a, a good opportunity to um, you know spend some time in the courtroom where things are always interesting and, and look at the law a little bit um, and develop sort of a specialty um, in legal coverage. And um, I stayed in Philadelphia after that and went to a Gannett paper in Wilmington, Delaware, where <clears throat> I covered several things. Um, that newsroom was sort of a mess and got moved around to several different beats um, over the time that I was there. And after that, I moved on to factcheck.org, also based in Philadelphia. Um, and there I am writing Tell about Tell us
0: about the, what Fact Check is.
2: Well, it's in the name. <laughs> um, it, primarily, um, factcheck.org uh, writes about and fact checks uh, public officials and politicians. Um, usually, you know, national in scope, so uh, senators, <laughs> representatives, and, uh, you know, in, in the executive branch. Often the president, um, and they also have recently, in the last couple of years, been covering uh, viral misinformation online, which is what I'm I'm writing about in partnership with uh, Facebook.
0: So your roots here, at the enterprise, our mission was: we seek the truth and print it. And has how is that either? I don't know which way it's gone <laughs> in the modern news world, has that become more important? And how do you you find truth and keep reporting it, especially in the midst of the kinds of things Andrew's been talking about, where more and more is expected of fewer and fewer people, but also Sarah in the kind of epicenter of figuring out in this current era of alternate facts, um, where we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, on this, on your second point, I, I mean, it, it, it's imperative now, um, you know, with politics being so divisive, for people to have the same set of facts in order to actually talk about issues, because it's, it's impossible to talk about issues in any meaningful way, if you're not starting from the same point of, you know, jobs numbers, <laughs> GDP, you know, actual facts. Um and, I, I mean, those things are still out there. It's just that the way they're presented often in partisan media, um, things get so skewed, and it's more opinion than news, often, that people are are taking in.
0: So, if you could just walk us through, I think you mentioned yesterday, in just a dinner table conversation, <laughs> about, um, for instance, the number of school shootings. What... If they're different groups putting out different numbers, what is it that you do? Just kind of walk us through the process of how you determine what is true. What are the facts there?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course, the you know, gun debate and regulation of <clears throat> firearms is a, a huge topic, a huge issue. Um, and if you're not starting from the same point of you know what what's what kind of a problem are we actually looking at it's hard to have a meaningful discussion about that issue so with school shooting deaths there was um a viral claim going around online that and now i've forgotten the exact figure but somewhere in the thousands um uh this you know meme was claiming that thousands of students had been shot in schools since sandy hook in 2012 um So I went through and looked at the actual number of shooting deaths of students on school property during school hours since then. And actually, you know what? If you don't mind, I'm just going to grab my phone and look up the actual numbers because I don't remember off the top of my head. One second.
0: Sarah's grabbing her phone. Andrew, you can talk maybe a little bit about at from your editor's seat when things come in as they do now from all different places how you determine what is true and what is not
1: well there's a lot of different ways um you have you put faith in the people who are covering a territory to start um but there's uh you you'd like to trust that they will be doing everything they can to verify information as well and i have floated this idea, hierarchy of, of, um, accuracy that I think some, we sometimes get lost at. in um, for example, just our, our names, correct. Um, people will some, our reporters will sometimes go into the archives and find that it was that way in the past and consider that to be enough. And it's not, it just takes one person making mistake once to be repeated years afterward. So, What is the best possible source to get that information? Obviously, the person's name. Um, There's a, a funny anecdote where I remember somebody coming back and getting it wrong. And they said, but no, that was on their business card. And we looked at the business card, and that was wrong. But yet the person didn't care and was still passing it around. We had an example here in Gilderland for many years. A reporter from a daily paper would get the town supervisor's name wrong. Um, oh, is
0: that Ann T. Anne Rose? Rose?
1: right. And, and the reason is because she looked her up in the phone directory where it was wrong and just used that forever afterward. Um, so um, you have to just consider what is the, the best way to get information and make sure that it's accurate.
0: Good. And now Sarah is back with her phone and her numbers. <laughs> Here so, I am with the phone, yes. yes. Um so the claim was that
2: 7,182 students had been um killed in US schools since 2012. Since Sandy Sandy Hook happened. The actual number, so it and this is it this also sort of touches on your other point about the, you know, number of reporters now in newsrooms dwindling. It cuz it takes time to you know, answer these sorts of claims to actually find out the real information. Um, You know, it took days to count through the number of actual incidents on school grounds where students had been shot. And it turns out the number is actually, the the number that we counted, and there are different ways of counting, um, but we counted 64. So it's it's still a lot of deaths, but it's nowhere close to 7,182 so you know it's important to have the the real information. So tell us
0: how you got the real information. How do you amass that?
2: So I I looked <clears throat> at I used three different um databases for um adding up those numbers. Um I used The FBI's list of active shooter incidents, um, a database that's kept by researchers at the Naval Postgraduate Schools uh, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, and a list kept by um, Everytown, which is uh, sort of a nonprofit organization that advocates for, you know, gun regulation. So between those three data sets, I went through and looked at, you know, incidents in which a student died, and that, you know, death happened on school property and during school hours. And this is
0: for universities and, um, you know, K through 12. So one of the things, too, that you mentioned earlier is a lot of us have in our mind a picture of what school shooting is, and we tend to think of it not as being a result of domestic violence or other causes that might have made it happen. So you looked at that as well.
2: Yeah, so that wasn't really part of the reporting in this, um, since it was sort of just on the, you know, the issue of numbers. But yeah, I mean, something that ha- happens when you have the luxury of time to, you know, go through and really research a story or an issue is, you know, you notice all kinds of other trends. Um, and yeah, something that came apparent to me that I hadn't realized is, you know, you have sort of um, a vision of what a school shooting looks like, But really, most of those deaths, most of those, you know, 64 deaths of students that happened, you know, on on school property weren't what you think of as a typical school shooting. Often it's, you know, domestic violence that, you know, spills over into the school. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So Andrew is wearing a shirt today. And um, those of you that are reading us on our website will see it. But it's one of a series, and I'll just read it. It's May the 1st Be With You, a little takeoff on, is it Star, Star Wars? Wars yeah. <laughs> yes. I, and um, tell us about the genesis of these shirts. And also, I think it feeds into the shooting at um, the Capitol Gazette, where you knew people and money went there from your shirt sales.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, if you go back... Um, more than a year, maybe two years, I was um, looking for a good First Amendment t-shirt. We we actually got one at our newspaper in Hagerstown many years ago. They gave them to the staff and it was great. I've worn them for a long time, but I wanted to create one that other people could have and uh, I thought it would be a good way to promote the First Amendment through an organization I'm active with, the Society of Professional Journalists. But there was also a bigger point to it, and that is to sort of redirect the idea of an us-versus-them mentality. There's a lot of um, criticism of the press, particularly from the president, and instead of fighting back and saying, no, we're not the enemy, or no, we're important, which I think is a, a losing idea to just be engaged in battle. As the editor of the Washington Post says, so we're not at war, we're at work. And so it's, the idea is to just focus on what you do, and in the case of the message, focus on the importance of the First Amendment. There are five freedoms in the First Amendment, and a lot of people don't know what they are. So if we could get people to be seeing the message and understanding the message, it might help. And we created this t-shirt that we sold for a while. then when there was a shooting at the Capitol gazette newspaper in Annapolis it's not not too far from where i am about 90 minutes
0: and andrew as people know if they read a column that he shared with us he he went to an event there and he knew he went to funerals he he there were friends of his right
1: it's a small journalism community in maryland you're never more than about a step or two away from somebody else in another newsroom we turned that into a fundraiser to help the newsroom and um, that is the bulk of the sales from that. From that shirt, it was we sold about 300 to start, and then it became a fundraiser where we sold about 800. So we ended up donating $15,000 to the fund to help the uh, newspaper survivors and family. We ended that December 31st of 2018. The fund was actually. Um, not shutting down, but it was changing its purpose, and we decided that we wanted to um, kind of end our effort at that point as well. But instead, we created a second shirt. It's this May the Force, May the First idea, and um, it ties into the release of a new Star Wars movie, but it's also starting to pick up sales. The uh, proceeds will go to a legal defense fund, that SPJ has, which is to help journalists in court battles. So these shirts are on sale. If you (laughs) wanted to buy one, it is uh, spj.org backslash t-shirts.asp, and they're $25.
0: And I know local people have bought them after you ran your column. So. It was amazing.
1: <laughs> uh, when the column ran in the Enterprise, I got a bunch of orders, including uh, one family, I think in Voorheesville, that ordered several. And, I think um, you said
0: it was Dr. Kaiserman.
1: Dr. Kaiserman, and we had um, some nice messages of support as, as part of that. So that was great.
0: So the shirt you were wearing yesterday had the Washington Post slogan on it. What is that?
1: Democracy dies in darkness.
0: It's a very dramatic slogan, but can either of you comment on how you feel? Is that true? Is I, I,
1: I think the it it, it uh, got some criticism as being kind of a dark and dire message, but the point is um, tied to a concept that we all believe in: sunshine is the best disinfectant. Having things come out in the in light and having them discussed and dissected is much better for the general public to understand what is happening, why it's happening, and how it's happening. So that's the point. It is kind of a stark message, but it's um, it's something that I believe in.
0: Well, so as newsrooms across the country are cutting staff, and Saranac was saying how that impacts the amount of research you can do, and as people are no longer getting their news from a single trusted source, the way they may be used to, there are things popping into their social media or they're looking at various venues. Like, what advice can you give consumers of news? I prefer to call them readers. <laughs> you know, how, how can you find out what's true or how can you keep democracy alive if you're going off the post slogan in an era when there's so much noise? That's a good question. <laughs> um,
2: I think that you you have to pay attention to where your news is coming from. I mean, on a lot of social media platforms, of course, it's difficult to sort of tell what source that news story is coming from because everything is presented with the, you know, sort of same formatting. But if you go to, you know, your your local newspaper website or, you know, the newspaper website for a, you know, a national um, newspaper, you can be pretty certain that you're getting real information. Um And if you're, you know, on social media, just do a quick Google search for, you know, whatever the headline is that you're reading or, you know, the name of the source for the, you know, where the information is coming from. You know, just do a quick, takes 30 seconds to,
0: you know, Google search what you're reading about. And then you can read across platforms and figure out what, if what you're reading is true.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can see where it comes from.
0: Um, Okay. Good advice. Do you have advice, Andrew? Yeah, the same
1: idea. I mean, dem- democracy is a participatory activity that you need to be able to ask questions and seek information, and not just expect all good answers to come to you. Uh, it's incumbent upon you if you find something to have a little bit of skepticism about it to verify it. And it is—it's like Sarah said—it's a—it's not a very complicated thing, but it's something we're not always used to. If we rely on Facebook and Twitter, and there's so many people, if you ask them how do you get your news, they say Facebook. Mm -hmm. But it ignores the idea of where is it actually coming from? Who's gathering it? It's not just where do you see it? It's who's who's producing it and who's verifying it. Exactly. So um, there there can be very honest misunderstandings, like satire websites, which are sometimes Mm -hmm. confused. For being real. Um, The Washington Post has gotten caught up in this and had to apologize for something that it saw. It seemed legitimate. It quoted. It may have even quoted the website, but it didn't take the extra step of finding, well, was this credible or was it even meant to be credible?
0: Another question I have is, do you feel... Like there's a generational divide. I had in for a podcast not long ago a senior at the University of Albany who was um, trying to get people to vote, just to register to vote, and, and having a lot of trouble. And it made me look up charts that sort of alarmed me. People that are older both tend to read newspapers and tend to vote. People that are between 18 and 29 very low numbers on either of those activities, which seem to be interrelated. Is, is there a way that the next upcoming generation can be?
2: Um... Yeah. Well, I will say that there's a similar divide, although sort of in a different direction, for being aware of how you're consuming information online. Older generations on Facebook tend to be less savvy about Understanding where that information is coming from that's presented to them on Facebook, whereas younger generations are more aware that they should be skeptical of what they're seeing online. Um, so I don't I don't know how to answer your question. No, but- I
0: don't either. I, I just with this idea of democracy dies, I was suddenly panicked when I looked up these numbers after that last podcast and just how do you engage? Um,
1: I'm not sure that it's necessarily just an age thing because there has been um, signs of renewed interest in government and politics with certain surges of um, candidacies or issues. Uh, Barack Obama's campaign was very effective in reaching people in different ways. Uh, And if you look at some of the numbers... um, Young people might come out to vote when they are realize they are affected or when they become interested in a person or an issue. Uh, so it's a matter of reaching people as opposed to figuring out how do I reach a certain age demographic. But what you do have to understand is how people will engage with other people Um So an understanding of social media or realizing that a phone is now the vehicle for many people is important. And that ties back to the news industry where we are now realizing that. I mean, it's not as simple as just making something digital and saying, okay, now everybody can see it. You have to understand that how it reaches you on your phone is significant. It's very easy to... Um, if you are used to flipping things, three things on your phone, if you press a button and it doesn't come up in five seconds, you get frustrated and you go on to the next thing.
0: That's true.
2: We're, well, and there are also a lot of opportunities, um, with presenting information digitally, um, you know, for people to interact with it and, you know, present information in a different way instead of just, you know, having stories and pictures, you know, have, you know, all kinds of interactive maps, graphs different sorts of graphics. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities in how to use, uh, you know, a digital platform.
0: Do you have any thoughts on, with the current president sort of making the press into the enemy, if that has a chilling effect on your work, or rather, does it sort of charge you and your colleagues up? Um, how, How, what effect does it have to have a president who's routinely blaming the press shooting the messenger?
1: I don't think there's a universal answer to that either. Uh, at a national level, it has more of an effect because the the tone in Washington is often set by things the president set that day, and uh, people who are working either with him or, or around him might adopt some of those same tactics. It's It's less likely to be an issue for the local mayor in, in this community to, to decide I'm going to attack the press in the same way that Trump does. But it's not um, unheard of. And I think that there, we have seen examples, even in this area, of um, wanting to blame the press. Not that that wasn't done before, but maybe it's seen as more acceptable because it plays well to a certain demographic they're going to say, yeah, you're right, and that kind of feeds off each
2: other.
0: Do you have any thoughts on that, Sarah? I don't. Okay. <laughs> well, our time is gone. Do you have any closing thoughts, either of you, things that you think are really important for people listening to this podcast to know?
1: I, I would say that a, a message that I um, see among my peers Uh, either in my newsroom or in national journalism organizations, especially SPJ is the constant reminder of the need to be informed through your local news organization. And it can be whatever you want to trust. I wouldn't just rely on one message, try to look for uh, how something is covered in, in multiple ways to help you triangulate towards truth. But, the importance of, of a subscription, and that's just that's something that was a horrible mistake that news organizations made. Is that everything needs to be free because people expect it? We're, we hurt ourselves greatly with that approach. We're trying to recover, but it's not such a, a big change in lifestyle as we all like to think. On both sides, we're used to paying for things on a monthly subscription, Netflix or Uh, a cable bill or, um, I mean, the example is a cup of coffee that we want to get from Starbucks. If we consider news to be valuable in that way, then to think of it as something that we are willing to pay for the way we pay for a lot of things changes how we come at it. Um, You know, there's constantly people saying, well, I've, I've run out of my free Uh, hits for the month. Why can't you just make this free? Which is an absurd question because everything has a cost to it. But we've allowed people to become used to the idea and expect it and to demand it to be free. that, that needs to change. It's starting to change, but that's a, a very important concept.
0: Because what a lot of people don't know, probably, if they're not newspaper aficionados, is that the advertising base that used to carry newspapers has really shifted away from print. And so, therefore, the subscriber becomes more important um, as a supporter of the Reporters and editors and photographers and the people that are doing the work of gathering and producing the news. Did you have any closing? Yeah, I
2: I would second everything that Andrew says absolutely. And also, when you are reading news on social media, when you're getting your news from Facebook, pay attention to where it's coming from. Do a quick Google search.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. This is fun.